Chapter Thirty Nine of Lorna Doom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy Fifty Five. Lorna Doom by Ara D. Blackmore. Chapter Thirty Nine: A Troubled State and a foolish joke stickles took me aside the next day and opened all his business to me whether i would or not but i gave him clearly to understand that he was not to be vexed with me neither to regard me as in any way dishonest if i should use for my own purpose or for the benefit of my friends any part of the knowledge and privy thus enforced upon me to this he agreed quite readily but upon the express provision that i should do nothing to thwart his schemes neither unfold them to any one but otherwise be allowed to act according to my own conscience and as consistent with the honour of a loyal gentleman for so he was pleased to term me now what he said lay in no great compass and may be summed in smaller still especially as people know the chief part of it already disaffection to the king or rather dislike to his brother james and fear of roman ascendancy had existed now for several years and of late was spreading rapidly partly through the downright arrogance of the troy fraction the cruelty and austerity of the duke of york the corruption of justice and confiscation of ancient rights and charters partly through jealousy of the french king and his potent voice in our affairs and partly or perhaps one might even say mainly through that natural tide in all political channels which verily moves as if it had the moon itself for its mistress no sooner is a thing done and fixed being set far in advance perhaps of all that was done before like a new mole in the sea but immediately the waters retire lest they should undo it and every one says how fine it is but leaves other people to walk on it then after a while the vague endless ocean having retired and lain still without a breeze or a murmur frets and heaves again with the impulse or with lashes laid on it and in one great surge advances over every rampart and so there was at the time i speak of a great surge in england not rolling yet but seething and one which a thousand chief justices in a million jeremy stickles should never be able to stop or turn by stringing up men in front of it any more than a rope of onions can repulse a volcano but the worst of it was that this great movement took a wrong channel at first not only missing legitimate line 
but roaring out that the back ditchway was the true and established course of it against this rash and random current nearly all the ancient mariners of the state was set not to allow the brave ship to drift there though some little boats might try it for the present there seemed to be a pulse with no open onset but people on the shore expecting each according to his wishes and the feel of his own finger whence the rush of wind should come which might direct the waters now to reduce high figures of speech into our own little numerals all the towns of somersetshire and the half towns of devonshire were full of pushing eager people ready to swallow anything or to make others swallow it whether they believed the folly about the black box and all that stuff is not for me to say only one thing i know they pretended to do so and persuaded the ignorant rustins taunton bridgewater minehead and doverton took the lead of the other towns in utterance of their discontent and threats of what they meant to do if ever a papist declared to climb the protestant throne of england on the other hand the troy leaders were not as yet under apprehension of an immediate outbreak and feared to damage their own cause by premature coercion for the struggle was not very likely to begin in earnest during the life of the present king unless he should as some people hoped be so far emboldened as to make public profession of the faith which he held if any so the troy policy was to watch not indeed permitting their opponents to gather strength and muster in armed force or with other order but being well apprised of all their schemes and attendant movements to wait for some bold overact and then to strike severely and as a toy watchman or spy as the whigs would call him jeremy stickles was now among us and his duty was threefold first and most obstinately to see to the levying of poundage in the little haven of Linemouth, and farther up the coast which was now becoming a place of resort for the folk whom we call smugglers that is to say who land their goods without regard to king's revenue as by law established and indeed there had been no officer appointed to take toll until one had been sent to minehead not so very long before the exercise as well which had been ordered in the time of the long parliament had been little heeded by the people hereabouts secondly his duty was though only the dunes had discovered it to watch those outlaws narrowly and report their manners which were scanty doings which were too manifold 
reputation which was execrable, and politics whether true to the king and the pope or otherwise jeremy stickles third business was entirely political to learn the temper of our people and the gentle families to watch the movements of the trained bands which could not always be trusted to discover any collecting of arms and drilling of men among us to prevent if need were by open force any importation of gunpowder of which there had been some rumor in a word to observe and forestall the enemy now in providing for this last mentioned service the government had made a great mistake doubtless through their anxiety to escape any public attention for all the disposable force at their emissary's command amounted to no more than a score of musketeers and these so divided among the coast as scarcely to suffice for the duty of sentinels he held a commission it is true for the employment of the trained bands but upon the understanding that he was not to call upon them except as a last resort for any political object although he might use them against the dunes as private criminals if found needful and supposing that he could get them so you see john he said in conclusion i have more work than tools to do with it i am heartily sorry i ever accepted such a mixed and meagre commission at the bottom of it lies i am well convinced not only the desire to keep things quiet but the paltry jealousy of the military people because i am not a colonel forsooth or a captain in his majesty's service it would never do to trust me with a company of soldiers and yet they would not send either colonel or captain for fear of a stir in the rustic mind the only thing that i can do with any chance of success is to rout out these vile doomed fellows and burn their houses over their heads now what think you of that john Reed? destroy the town of the dunes i said and all the dunes inside it surely jeremy you would never think of such a cruel act as that a cruel act john it would be a mercy for at least three counties no doubt you folk who live so near are well accustomed to them and would miss your liveliness in coming home after nightfall and the joy of finding your sheep and cattle right when you not expected it but after a while you might get used to the dullness of being safe in your beds and not losing your sisters and sweethearts surely on the whole it is as pleasant not to be robbed as to be robbed i think we should miss them very much i answered after consideration for the possibility of having no dunes had never yet occurred to me and we all were so thoroughly used to them and allowed for it in one year's reckoning 
I am sure we would miss them very sadly, and something worse would come of it. <laughs> Thou art the staunchiest of all staunch Tories, cried Stickles, laughing as he shook my hand. Thou believest in the divine right of robbers, who are good enough to steal thy own fat sheep. I am a jolly toy, John, but thou art ten times jollier. Oh, the grief in thy face at the thought of being robbed no longer. He laughed in a very unseemly manner, while I descried nothing to laugh about. For we always like to see our way, and a sudden change upsets us. And unless it were in the loss of the farm, or the death of the king, or of Betty Muxworthy, there was nothing that could so unsettle our minds as the loss of the dunes of Bagworthy. And beside all this, I was thinking, of course, and thinking more than all the rest, about the troubles that might ensue to my own beloved Lorna. If an attack of Glendoon were made by savage soldiers and rude train bands, what might happen, or what might not, to my delicate, innocent darling? Therefore, when Jeremy Stickles again placed the matter before me, commending my strength and courage and skill to flatter me of the highest, and finished by saying that I would be worth at least four common men to him, I cut him short as follows. Master Stickles, once for all, I will have naught to do with it. The reason why is no odds of thine, nor in any way disloyal. Only in thy plans remember that I will not strike a blow, neither give any counsel, neither guard any prisoners. Not strike a blow? cried Jeremy. Against thy father's murderers, John? Not a single blow, Jeremy, unless I knew the man who did it, and he glorified in his sin. It was a foul and dastardly deed, yet not done in cold blood, neither in cold blood will I take God's task of avenging it. Very well, John, answered Master Stickles. I know thine obstinately, when thy mind is made up, to argue with thee is pelting a rock with peppercorns. But thou hast some other reason, lad, unless I am much mistaken, over and above thy merciful nature and Christian forgiveness. Anyhow, come and see it, John. There will be good sport, I reckon especially when we thrust our claws into the nest of the ravens. Many a yeoman will find his daughter, and some of the pork-lock lads their sweethearts. A nice young maiden now for thee, John, if indeed any. No more of this, I answered very sternly. It is no business of thine, Jeremy, and I will have no joking upon this matter. Good, my lord, so be it. But one thing I thee tell thee in earnest, we will have thy old devil dealing uncle, Huckaback of Doverton, and march him first to assault Doon Castle, surely as my name is Stickles. 
I hear that he hath often vowed to storm the valley himself, if only he could find a dozen musketeers to back him. Now we will give him chance to do it, and prove his loyalty to the king, which lies under some suspicion of late. With regard to this, I had nothing to say, for it seemed to me very reasonable that Arkham Reuben should have first chance of recovering his stolen goods, about which he had made such a sad to-do, and promised himself such vengeance. I made bold, however, to ask Master Stickles at what time he intended to carry out this great and hazardous attempt. He answered that he had several things requiring first to be set in order, and that he must make an inland journey, even as far as Tiverton, and perhaps Credenton and Exeter, to collect his forces and ammunition for them. For he meant to have some of the yeomanry, as well as of the train bands, so that if the dunes should sally forth, as perhaps they would, on horseback, cavalry might be there to meet them, and cut them off from returning. All this made me very uncomfortable, for many and many reasons, the chief and foremost being, of course, my anxiety about Lorna. If the attack succeeded, what was to become of her? Who would rescue her from the brutal soldiers? Even supposing that she escaped from the hands of her own people, during the danger and the ferocity, and in smaller ways, I was much put out, for instance. Who would ensure our corn ricks, sheep and cattle, ay, and even our fat pigs, now coming on for bacon, against the spreading all over the country of unlicensed marauders? The dunes had their rights, and understood them, and took them according to prescription, even as the parson had, and the lords of manners, and the king himself, God save him. But how were these low soldiering fellows, half starved at home very likely, and only too glad of the fat of the land, and ready, according to our proverb, to burn the paper they fried in, who were they to come heckering and harrowing over us, and hilogad basiling with our pretty sisters to cook for them, and be chuckled under a chin perhaps afterwards. There is nothing England hates so much, according to my senses of it, as that fellow's taken from prog-tail, cart-tail, pot-houses, and parish stocks, should be hoisted and foisted upon us, after a few months drilling in their line-shaped into truckling, as defenders of the public will, and heroes of the universe. In another way I was vexed, moreover, for after all we must consider the opinions of our neighbors, namely, that I knew quite well how everybody for ten miles around, for my fame must have been at least that wide after all my wrestling, would lift up hands and cry out this 
black shame on John Reed if he lets them go without him. Putting all these things together, as well as many others, which our own wits will suggest to you, it is impossible, but you will freely acknowledge that this unfortunate John Reed was now in a coven stick. There was Lorna, my love and life, bound by her duty to that old Villeneuve, I mean to her good grandfather, who could now do little mischief and therefore deserved all praise. Lorna bound, at any rate, by her womanly feelings, if not by sense of duty, to remain in the thick danger with nobody to protect her, but everybody to covet her, for beauty and position. Here was all the country roused with violent excitement at the chance of snapping at the dunes, and not only getting tit for tat, but every young man promising his sweetheart a gold chain and his mother at least a shilling. And here was our own mow-yard, better filled than we could remember, and perhaps every sheaf in it destined to be burned or stolen, before we had finished the bread we had baked. Among all these troubles there was, however, or seemed to be, one comfort. Tom Fagus returned from London very proudly and very happily, with a royal pardon in black and white, which everybody admired the more, because no one could read a word of it. The squire himself acknowledged cheerfully that he could sooner take fifty purses than read a single line of it. Some people indeed went so far as to say that the parchment was made from a sheep Tom had stolen, and that was why it prevacated so in giving him a character. But I, knowing something by this time of lawyers, was able to contradict them, affirming that the wolf had more than the sheep to do with this matter. For according to our old saying, the three learned professions live by roguery on the three parts of a man. The doctor mauls our bodies, the parson starves our soul, but the lawyer must be the adroitest knave, for he has to ensnare our minds. Therefore he takes a careful delight in covering his traps and engines with a spread of dead-leaf words, whereof himself knows little more than half the way to spell them. But now Tom Fagus, although having wit to gallop away on his strawberry mare with the speed of terror from lawyers having paid then with money too honest to stop yet fell into a reckless adventure ere ever he came home from which any lawyer would have saved him although he ought to have needed none beyond common thought for dear annie now i am and ever have been so vexed about this story that I cannot tell it pleasantly, as I try to write in general, in my own words and manner. Therefore I will let John Fry, whom I have robbed of another story, to which he was more entitled, and whom I have robbed of many speeches, 
which he thought very excellent, lest I should grieve any one with his lack of education, the last lack he ever felt by the by. Now with your good leave, I will allow poor John to tell his tale in his own words and style, which he has a perfect right to do, having been the first to tell us. For Squire Fagus kept it close, not trusting even Annie with it, or at least she said so, because no man knows much of his sweetheart's tongue until she has borne him a child or two. Only before John begins his story, this I would say, in duty to him, and in common honesty, that I dare not write down some few of his words because they are not convenient for dialect or other causes, and that I cannot find any way of spelling many of the words which I do repeat. So that people, not born in Exmoor, may know how he pronounced them, even if they could bring their lips and their legs to the proper attitude. And in this I speak advisedly, having observed some thousand times that the manner of a man has of spreading his legs and bending his knees, or stiffening, and even the way he will set his heel, make all the difference in his tone, and time of casting his voice aright, and power of coming home to you. We always like John's stories, not for any wit in them, but because we laughed at the man rather than the matter. The way he held his head was enough, with his chin fixed hard like a certainty, especially during his biggest lie. Not a sign of a smell in his lips or nose, but a power of not laughing, and his eyes not turning to anybody unless somebody had too much of it, as young girls always do, and went over the brink of laughter. Thereupon it was good to see John Fry, how he looked gravely first at the laughter, as much as to ask, What is it now? Then if the fool went laughing more, as he or she was sure to do upon that dry inquiry, John would look again, to be sure of it, and then as somebody else to learn whether the laugh had company. Then if he got another grin, all his mirth came out in glory, with a sudden break, and he wiped his lips and was grave again. Now John, being too much encouraged by the girls, of which I could never break them, came into the house that December evening with every inch of him full of a tale. Annie saw it, and Lizzie, of course, and even I, in the gloom of great evils, perceived that John was a loaded gun, but I did not care to explode him. Now nothing primed him so hotly as this. If you wanted to hear all John Fry had heard, the surest of all sure ways to it was to pretend not to care for a word of it. I want over to Exford in the morning, John began from the chimney corner looking straight at Annie, for to zee a little calf, Jan, as us couldn't get zee to laze around the house. Missy 
have got a square fancy for him, for what her have hid of the brave. Now zit quiet, will you, Miss Zizzy, or a won't goin on the further. Vain little tale, I tell you. So be zee zit quiet. Woo, as I come down to here, I see the straight of Volks a strapping of the Roudi. All on em with grit goons, or two men out of three with em. Reckon there were three score of em. Talk small and beg together like it. Loud around women and chillers. Some of em with matches blowing, totators with flint lacks. Would be up now, I says to be a blacksmith, as had knowledge of me. Be the king of coming? If her be, do ye want to shun em? Thee not now, says Bill Blacksmith, just the same as I be a tellin' of it. What a man us suspect Tom Fagus and Zuma's us mains to shut em? Shut em without a warrant, says I? Sure he knows better no thick, Bill. A man maiden shut to another man, what I have a warrant? Bill, was it so z? Last time I seen him, and nothing to the contrary. Ha ha, never fight about that, said Bill. Same as I be telling you. Us has warrants and worshipping now, do you for on em? And more, nor a dozen warranties, for you I know the contrary. Shut em, us means and shut em, us wills. Wait, Miss Annie, good Lord, whatever makes it so stare so? Nothing at all, John, our Annie answered. Only the horrible ferocity of that miserable blacksmith. That may neither here nor there, John continued, with some wrath at his own interruption. Blacksmith Norwood, the squire had been, and veered to lose his own custom, as squire took the shooting again, shut any man I would myself as interfered with my trader likey. Lucky for thee, said Bill Blacksmith, at these best so short and fat, Jan, thee on us wore a goon to shut em. Till a Z how fat thee was, Jan. Lord, now, Bill, I answer, un what a good cold swat upon me. Shut me, Bill, and my own wife, and never drum of it. Here, John Fry looked round the kitchen, for he had never seen anything of the kind, I doubt, but now made it part of his discourse. From thinking that Mistress Fry was come, as she generally did, to fetch him. What done then, Jan Fry? said the woman who had entered quietly, but was only our old Molly. What handsome manners thee has got, Jan, to speak so well of thy, of thy wifey like it? After all the lafer she leads thee. Put thee pot on the fire, old woman and bow thee on baker john answered her very sharply nobody no right to meddle with a man's bad omen but themselves well here was all these here men awaiting some with horses some without the common folk with long good guns and the quality with good broad swords who were they 
we'll let me see. There was Squire Mortimer. Here John assumed his full historic key. Him with the part to his vittle place, and Sir Richard Bellwit shaking over the zaddy, and Squire Sanford Lee, him with the long nose and one eye, and Sir Gronus Bachchildor over to Nonehead Court, and there were so many more of them tolling up on how they was a going to be promoted for kicking kitchen of Tom Fagus. Hope to God, says I to myself, poor Tom wouldn't come here today or up with her, if a doted and who be there to suck a days. Mark me now, all these chops was good to shut em. As her coon crashed the water, the water be weighed now, there and stony, but no deeper than my knee place. D. Canson, good no verter, black men said to me, nobody lower to crash the verd until such time as Fagus coon. Plays God us may make sure of em. Amen, so be it, says I. God a knoweth. I be never in a hurry, and would a sooner stop no goon on most tammies. With that I pulled my vittles out, and zat a horseback a ten of em, and on common good they was. Won't let us have this tamer just saith, Tim Potter, as keepeth the bull there, and yet I be sorry for em, but a man must cape the law, her must, zo be her can only learn it, and now poor Tom will swing as high as the tops of they git hashes there. Just the kitchen unvist, says I, measure rope with the body to measure by. Hooray! Here be another now, said Bill Blacksmith, grinning. Another coon help us. What a grave gentleman, a warship of the pace at last. For the gentleman on a cue-ball horse, was coming slowly down a hill on to other side of water, looking at us in a friendly way, and with a long papa standing forth the lining of his coat like he. Horse strapped to a drink of water, and gentlemen spat to unkindly, and then they coon right on to unseen, and the gentleman's face was so long and so gray, us veered a worn a goon to us. Courts of King's Bench, saith one man checker and plays saith another splish your commission i doubt saith bill blacksmith backed by the mayor of taunton any justice of the king's peace good people to be found near here said a gentleman lifting his hat to us and very gracious in his manner your honor saith bill with his hat off his head There'll be six or seven warships here, all on them very wise em. Squire, martyrer, there'll be the zinner. So the gentleman rode up to Squire Martyrer, and raised his cocked hat in a manner that took the squire out of countenance, for he could not do the like of it. Sir, he said, good and worshipful sir. I am here to claim your good advice and valor for purposes of justice. I told His Majesty's commission to make a cease a notion rogue whose name is Thomas Fagus. With that he offered his commission. 
but Squire Mortimer told the truth, that he could not read even words in print, much less written characters. Then the other magistrates rode up and put their heads together, how to meet the London gentlemen without loss of importance. There were one of them as could raid purity very, and made out king's mark upon it, and he bowed upon his horse to the gentleman, and he laid his hand on his heart and said, Worshipper, sir, we, as has the honor of his gracious majesty's commission, are entirely at your service, and crave instructions from you. Least I seem to underrate the erudition of Devonshire magistrates. I venture to offer a copy of a letter from a justice of the peace to his bookseller, circular 1810 A.D., now in my possession. Sir, please to send me the ass relating to Augustus Pax, Ed of L.D. Then a waving of hats began, and bowing, and making of legs to one another, such as never was seen before, but none of them all, for Aaron Braden, could coom and eye the gentleman with the long grave face. Your warships have posted the men right well, saideth he with a gather around all around. Surely that big rogue will have no chance left among so many valiant musketeers. Ha! What see I there, my friend? Rust in the pan of your gun. That gun would never go off, sure as I am the king's commissioner. And I see another just as bad, and lo, there's a third. Pardon me, gentlemen. I have been so used to his majesty's ordnance yards, but I feel that bold rogue would ride through all of you and laugh at your worship's beards by George. But what shall us do? Squire Marderer asked. I fear there be no oil here. Discharge your pieces, gentlemen, and let the men do the same, or at least let us try to discharge them and load again with fresh powder. It is the fog of the morning, half spoiled the primin. That rogue is not in sight yet. But God knows we must not be asleep with him, or what will his majesty say to me, if we let him slip once more. Excellent! Wondrous! Well said, good sir, Squire Marderer answered him. I never should have thought of that now. Be a blacksmith. Tell all the men to be ready to shoot up into the air. Directly I give the word. Now, are you ready there, Bill? All ready, your worship, saideth Bill, saluting like a soldier. Then, one, two, three, and shoot! cries Squire Marderer, standing up in the arms of his stirrups. Thereupon they all blazed out, and the noise of it went all around the hills, with a girt thick cloud rising, and all the air smelling of powder. Before the cloud was gone so much as ten yards on the wind, 
the gentleman on the cool ball horse shuts up his face like a pair of nut cracks as wide as it was long before and now he pulls two girt pistols alongside a saddle and clappeth one to squire marjorie's head and to other to sir richard's bellwits hand forth your money and all your warrants he said it like a clap of thunder gentlemen have you now the wit to apprehend tom fagus squire Mardera swore so that he ought to be fine but he pulled out his purse none the slower for that and so did sir richard bellwith first man i see go to load a gun i'll give him the bullet to do it with said toms for you see it was him and no other looking quietly round upon all of them then he robbed all the rest of their warships as pleasant as might be and he saideth now gentlemen do your duty serve your warrants afore you imprison me and with that he made them give up all the warrants and he stuck them in the band of his hats and then he made a bow with it good morning to your warships now and a merry christmas all of you and the merrier both for rich and poor when gentlemen see their arms are given least you deny yourselves the pleasure i would aid your warships and to save you the trouble of following me when your guns be loaded this is my strawberry mare gentlemen only with a little cream on her gentlemen all in the name of the king i thank you all this while he was casting their money among the poor folk by the handful and then he spank kindly to the red mare and wore over the back of the hill in two seconds and the best part of two mile away i reckon afore ever a gun were loaded the truth of this story is well established by first-rate tradition end of chapter thirty nine recording by Daisy 55.